following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So we're still talking about snapshots of Jesus' life in the Sundays going into Christmas Eve. And today I want to talk about uh, peace. And Becky prayed about this a little bit, I think, at the, at the end of the worship time there. But I don't know if you're familiar with the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, which was a poem early on by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Great start. The Christmas bells, if we'd have a church, it would have a bell that would ring out on Christmas Day. It's a reminder of of the peace that God brings. And then as you go through the poem, you get to this verse. But in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then promptly follows it up with, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. And I was thinking about it this week. I I think I feel this way every year, and I don't think this makes our times unusual, but this seems to be a time in U.S. history, maybe even world history, where peace is not a word I would use to characterize what goes on. I might read the news too much. That's possible. But there seems to be this sense of conflict almost everywhere. I mean, not just globally reading articles again this week about uh, how many Christians were killed recently in Nigeria. And you get the fighting and the, the rockets and the bombs that are being shot. And we get closer to home and we get to Washington, D.C., and that's not characterized by peace. And then you read the local news, and that's not characterized by peace. And then we look at our schedules in the month of December, and that often doesn't seem to be characterized by peace. And yet we talk every Christmas about peace on earth. It's a clear reason Jesus came. The angels announce it. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace on those on whom the favor of God rests. So there's something about Jesus that brings peace. So our snapshot of Jesus today is going to have to do with this topic. And we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 21. And this is Matthew's account of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. The theme so far in those two paragraphs seems to be donkey. Like, this is said a lot as if this is a big deal, and it is actually, because riding a donkey was a very particular kind of thing that a very particular kind of king did. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders rode horses if they rode to war, but they rode donkeys if they came in peace. So 1 Kings 1 mentions Solomon riding a donkey on the day he was recognized as the new king of Israel. And the mention of a donkey in Zechariah 9 fits the description of a king 
who would be righteous and having salvation and gentle. So rather than ready to conquer, this king would enter in peace. So just so you know, this is one of those images in Scripture that can seem a little odd to us. If I rode here on a donkey one morning, you would just have concerns. But if a king rode in or a messiah rode in on a donkey back then, it sent a message to that audience. This is someone who is coming in to lead us into peace. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds of disciples that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. How dare they yell so loudly and so kindly. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And when Jerusalem came into view, he looked intently at the city, and he began to weep. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, how I wish you knew today the terms of peace, but you can't see. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus had used this phrase, terms of peace, or your translation might have, if you'd only known what would bring peace. If we jump over to Luke 14, Jesus is talking in parables and he says, what king going to encounter another king in a war will not sit down first and take counsel whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an embassy and he asks the king what the terms of peace will be or what would bring peace. It's the same phrase, both places. So the king will bring peace, but it's going to be the king's peace on the king's terms and in the king's way. And it sounds really good, but if you go back to Matthew now and you see what happens after Jesus announces this and he says to Jerusalem, I wish you could see where your actual terms of peace come from. The, the next thing he does, or one of the next things he does, is he drives the money exchangers from the temple and then he curses a leafy fig tree that's not bearing figs. And then he tells the chief priests and the elders that tax collectors and prostitutes would get into the kingdom of heaven before they did. Then he tells them the parable of this landowner with a vineyard who sends his son to collect the harvest, and the tenants kill this son. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who produce fruit. So... They're the barren fig tree. They're the ones who look good. They're leafy with all of their deeds, but they're not producing anything. And this seems like an odd way to follow up this thing about peace. Oh, Jerusalem, I wish that you understood, understood the terms of peace. That he drives people out of a temple and he deeply insults the Pharisees. It's probably not an insult as much as he's deeply observant about the state of the Pharisees. In fact, in other places, he says that they make disciples of hell. I mean, this was not what we would think of in some ways as a peaceful follow-up to these things that he said about peace. But there's something here about peace, because if Jesus brings peace, that just because those things happen doesn't mean he's not a king who brings peace. It just means his peace might be different than what we expect. And to actually bring peace sometimes requires some conflict so that on the other side of that conflict is genuine peace. So he was a little unsettling to his first audience. So the religious leaders, 
They were looking for a Messiah or a king who would cleanse the temple, who would restore the reputation, the influence of the temple in the world. And, and Jesus did this. He did come to purify the temple, but it's not what they expected. They didn't expect that the purification involved them. They assumed they were the pure part of the temple. And Jesus comes in and says very clearly, no, you guys are the problem. You're this, you look good, but you're not bearing fruit. Uh, you're barren. Yeah, you make disciples of hell. Like this, this was unsettling to the religious folk of the day. They thought they were part of the solution. And Jesus says very clearly, actually, you're contributing pretty heavily to the problem. So the crowds cheered him when he came in as, once again, a king or messiah. This is where the palm branches become important. Those palm branches were the symbol the zealots used. The zealots were the ones who were looking to overthrow Rome with a sword. If you read Jewish history, they tried over and over. They led movement after movement where they would rise up, they would fight Rome, they would all get slaughtered. But they kept trying. So this crowd that welcomes Jesus, they're excited. They think he's bringing a sword. And I have to imagine they weren't terribly excited about his riding a donkey instead of a war horse. And in their eyes, Jesus lets them down again and again. Jesus says, uh, don't start an uprising against Rome. He tells them to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He tells them to repay evil with good. He tells them his kingdom's not of this world. And when his servants try to fight on his behalf, he says, put your sword away. I think come here for this kind of kingdom. I'm not asking you to do violence on my behalf. You're misunderstanding why I'm here. And to just get an idea of how unsettling this is, just look at John the Baptist who from the time they were children, here's John the Baptist and Jesus as cousins. Their lives are deeply intertwined. At one point, John the Baptist introduces Jesus and he says, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Passover fulfillment. He's here to take away the sins of the world. But then you fast forward to John when he's in jail awaiting his death and he sends a message to Jesus and he says, are you the one? Are you the one or should we be waiting for somebody else? I mean, John is having his moments of doubt. Jesus is not, if, I, if I'm understanding how to read between the lines here correctly, Jesus is not showing up like John expected. John says, I just need to know, are you the one? And Jesus says to the people who come and ask him, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed are those who do not take offense in me. Which seems like an odd line to end with because what could possibly be offensive about the blind receiving sight, the lame walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead being raised, proclaiming the good news to everybody now, and then Jesus says, don't be offended? I think it's because when Jesus sends his reply, he's quoting from a couple different places in Isaiah. And as Isaiah was prophesying what the Messiah would look like, um, he says all these things. Then Isaiah also adds, oh, he's going to bring judgment. Uh, there'll be a day of vengeance. And when Jesus says, tell John this about me, he leaves off the day of vengeance part, which is what the Jewish people were longing for. They wanted Rome to get theirs. And Jesus says, actually, I'm, I'm here to bring peace. Don't be offended by it. I'm here to bring peace. I'm on the king's terms, not yours. So he says, Jerusalem, I wish 
you knew today the terms of peace. So what is this peace? Well, it's Jesus. And we see the terms in Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He said that during the last supper, during communion, which we're going to do later. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Revelation 1, 5 through 6. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, who cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then finally, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the peace. God himself pays the penalty for our peace-breaking sin so that we can live in peace first with God, then with those around us, and within ourselves. I think we can get tripped up like the people who lived when Jesus was on earth. We can have this expectation that when Jesus comes to bring peace, it's going to resolve all the things swirling around us. And if that's our expectation, I think we'll often be disappointed. Jesus didn't make the Romans go away. He taught his people how to live in peace with the Romans, not always even with peace with the Romans because there was plenty of martyrs when the church grew, but how to live in peace in the midst of the Romans. He didn't confront others in answer to the hope and prayers of the Pharisees. He confronted the Pharisees. The Pharisees felt like there would be spiritual peace if just all these other people would do better at following God, and Jesus comes and says, actually, it's not them. I'm not here to solve that thing swirling around there. I'm here to solve what's happening in you. I'm here to address the issue within you. So they wanted a Messiah who would set everyone else right, as if the problem was only around them rather than in them, and that's what they couldn't see. They just assumed that God would deal with others. I wonder how often it's the case for us that when we see conflict around us, our prayer is, I'm going to assume you're all like me to at least some degree. I know I've defended my normalcy from the pulpit before, but here I go again. <laughs> that often when I experience a lack of peace, my prayer is for God to, God, work in this person who's causing me distress. Work on that situation that is causing me stress. Deal in that situation in the news because it's upsetting me. Deal with this, that, those, rather than asking the question, what is it about me that I'm not experiencing the peace of God? And it's not as if God is uninterested in those other things. And those very well maybe should be part of our prayer at some point that God does in his mercy deal with these things around us that are outside of God's design and will. But does my prayer start here? And as I long for peace, is my starting point, dear God, I need peace between me and you. I need the peace that passes understanding. There's something unsettled in me that needs addressing 
The, the peace I pray for first is the peace as God does a work inside of my heart and my mind and my soul. There's a ripple effect of that. We'll talk about it in just a minute. And it doesn't mean I don't pray for other situations. But as my starting point, looking at a God who came to bring peace between me and God. See, the problem was, was them in the case of the Pharisees. They were the source of sin in the world. They were the ones the Messiah came for. And he came to deliver them just not in the way that they thought. I know I've mentioned this before, but there was a guy named G.K. Chesterton who was a, a British Christian, and one time he was asked by a newspaper to identify the problem with the world. They sent this question out to a number of different intellectuals at the time. They said, what's wrong with the world? And he sent back a two-word reply, I am, which was, I think, just a succinct, a succinct way of saying, I contribute to the problem. The brokenness of the world runs through my heart. And it can be easy to look around and go, why aren't other people doing peaceful things when the real question is, or at least the starting question is, what does it look like for me to experience the peace of God in my life? So the king sets the terms of peace. He makes things right between sinful fallen humanity and a holy God by paying the price of reconciliation. I like how Tim Keller puts it. God did not inflict pain on someone else, but rather on the cross absorbed the pain, violence, and evil of the world into himself. This is a God who becomes human and who offers his own lifeblood in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that someday he could destroy all evil without destroying us. And that's what brings peace. And I wonder if Jesus were here today, if he rode his, I don't know what car is equivalent to a donkey, if he rode his Chevy Citation into Traverse City, I had one of those, so I'm allowed to make fun of it. Um, he rides it in, and he stands up here, and if he would say to us, oh, you long for peace, but you're missing the terms of peace. That's just what I've been thinking about this week. And I don't mean to discount the fact that in a broken world, there's just a lot of situations. Make that every situation that is in desperate need of the healing that God offers in a broken world, right? But it, it just makes me wonder sometimes, and, and I hope once again I can project my unsettledness onto you so that you too can be unsettled. What does it look like to start first by asking the question when it comes to why do I not feel at peace? Whether it's I don't feel at peace with others, I don't feel at peace within. What happens is instead of asking the question, what is going on out there that I need to address, that the first question is, what is going on in here that God needs to address? Am I right with Jesus? Am I surrendered to Jesus? Have I given my life? Am, am I going through the process of what we call discipleship? That, that's prayer, it's, it's Bible study, communing with God's people, living lives of repentance and forgiveness and accountability and worship and all of these types of things. What happens if our first response when we lack peace is to get down on our knees and offer up a prayer that says, oh, dear God, I need you more than ever. 
I, I realize more than ever that I am in need of you. For me personally, this means when, when I read the news, A, I should probably read the news less. But when I read the news, when I'm forced to and I have to, what does it look like if something begins to roil something up in me rather than thinking about how do I respond in some fashion? What if it's just, oh, dear God, give me peace. Help me to remember that you're sovereign in the world, that you are in control, that you see and you know all things. Um, help me experience the peace of God. I don't have to save the world. That's what Jesus does. Okay. That's good. Uh, okay, let's settle in that. Now, are there ways then that the peace of God in me can begin to permeate the world with peace and bring peace? What does it look like for me to be a peacemaker? I feel like so often I start by trying to fix things around me when I suspect the first thing I have to do is make sure that I am right before God. The first fixing happens here. The first fixing happens here. And then, with the peace of God in me, what does it look like to move into situations that lack peace and bring the peace of God, which is, it's love, it's truth, it's justice, it's mercy, it's compassion, it's all of these things working together. But if I do not have peace, what are the odds I can move into a world and bring peace? I think the odds are slim. There's something about starting here, about being, for me, being a man of peace, and then think about what does it look like to be a peacemaker in the world and to bring peace. And once again, that doesn't mean other people aren't breaking peace. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying my unsettledness this week is that I don't think I start with asking the question, am I genuinely at peace with God? And that only happens through Jesus Christ. That only happens through understanding I am a sinner. I break the world. I need Jesus Thank God for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now he brings something new in me. He fixes things that are broken. He brings dead things to life. Okay, that's this. I got to refocus. I need this peace. And, and not just in my head, but to understand what it means in my heart. Now, as a person of peace that moves out, now as I talk with you, as I go into this situation, wherever I'm going, now the peace of God is going with me. And it's not just Anthony trying to establish my own terms of peace and assuming I ought to wield a sword or assuming all the spiritual problems of the world are out there. It starts, it starts in here. Experiencing the peace of God in, in my life. We're going to do communion today because I think, among other things, when we partake in the emblems of Christ's sacrifice for us, we were reminded of the terms of peace that the king himself set. He will die so that we can live. He will be broken and spilled out so that we do not have to be broken and spilled out. 
So when we commemorate Jesus' death by partaking in these symbols, we are reminded of the terms of peace. Because of Jesus, we rebels dying in our sin are made right with God. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.